Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The word of the Lord. Would you please rise with me as you're able and affirm together our trust in God's word. Let's say it together. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Today we uh, begin a new series from the book of Acts, as you heard uh, Kathy read for us. And I have two goals in mind throughout this series. My two goals are, one is to explore how the gospel changes a person, so we'll look, we're going to look at various people encountering the gospel and, and their lives being changed. And I hope that all of us find ourselves in one or more of these people in the book of Acts. But my second goal is for us to explore how we can be more effective in sharing the gospel with others. So we're both looking at how it affects us and how we can affect others with it. So if you're not a Christian and you're curious about what we're talking about this morning, I hope that you will encounter the life-changing power of Jesus. And if you are a Christian, I hope that you will continue to experience the same power and will learn how to share it with others. So this morning we're looking at the first miracle after the Spirit comes down on, on the church. The first miracle that happens is in chapter 3, and that is the healing of a beggar at the temple gate. I'd like us to consider four things in this passage, just four things. Number one, the gate. Number two, the look. Number three, the leap. And number four, the name. The gate, the look, the leap, and the name. Now, our story begins with a desperate man at the gate begging for alms, begging for money. He has been disabled from birth, unable to walk, Every day he is brought to the temple. We don't know who brings him. It's possible that he pays for these services, that he hired somebody to bring him to the temple. And he is there and he begs for money. He's become a sort of a fixture. Everybody knows him. Everybody knows that he's there at the beautiful gate, specific gate leading to the temple. Day after day, he's at his station. He's begging for money. His location at the gate I think gives us several hints of his desperate situation. So number one, he's at the gate because this was a good place to be noticed by worshipers 
whose piety may have encouraged them to give. As you're going to worship and you pass somebody who's begging for money, there is an impulse, right? There is a religious impulse to give. If I'm going to worship God, maybe I should also live my faith out and maybe I should help people. And so he's there strategically and he depends on the pity of the worshipers to survive since his disability prevents him from working and earning an income. The second clue that we have as to his location and how it relates to his condition is that he is at the gate because his family was either unable or unwilling to care for him. Now, typically, a person with a disability would be cared for by his family, and yet he's there, he's begging, he's depending on the pity of strangers. So something happened, there's some discord, there's some disconnect between him and his relatives. So he's not just physically disabled, he's also socially disabled as well. He's dealing with a a social disability, a social dysfunction. He doesn't have people in his life that are caring for him. And he needs others' care. And then finally, the third clue we see is that he's at the gate because he's not allowed to enter the temple. According to the Jewish law, his disability, his physical disability, made him ritually unclean. He couldn't go into the temple with the worshipers. So he was at the gate on the outside of the worshiping community. He's not able to go in. He's not able to participate. He was in a desperate Condition. He was also spiritually disabled as well as physically and socially limited. He was on the other side of the door and he was not going to be able to go through it. He lives a life of exclusion, humiliation, dependence on other people's pity. And so when he meets Peter and John, this is a pivotal moment in his life, What are his expectations from this meeting? I'd like to suggest to you that his expectations are very low, in fact. All he's asking for is money. That's all he's asking for. He's a desperate man, but we might say that he was not desperate enough. He wanted money when he should have wanted complete restoration, physical healing, social Uh, reconciliation with others, spiritual renewal. What he wanted was his condition to be bearable. That was his goal. All he wanted was just to get enough money to survive, enough money for that day. And that's all he's asking for. Notice how low his expectations are and how great his desperation should be. Now the story tells us that the gospel this message of Jesus coming into the world to help us. The gospel offers more to us than we know to ask. The gospel offers more to us than we're actually asking God to do. And anyone who has encountered Jesus has already received more than they could ask for or imagine. That's my story. That's every believer's story. We came to Jesus wanting something, and Jesus ends up giving us much more and more than we even knew to ask. Now, most of us come to Jesus with fairly low expectations. Jesus, I am desperate enough to go to you because I need help in my marriage. Or, Jesus, I'm in a financial crisis and I need help, so I'm going to go to you and ask. Or, Jesus, I'm just desperate enough to go to you because I need help with my child. 
or I need strength to get through this surgery. That's why I'm coming to you. And we go basically asking for Jesus to make my life more bearable, just more tolerable. But Jesus, in response to our very low expectations, comes in and gives us a whole new life. I mean, isn't that wonderful to think that Jesus doesn't respond to our own expectations? That his expectations for our lives are much higher than our own? That often we don't know what to ask for and he himself shapes our prayers so he can give to us what he means to give to us? I mean, this is who we're dealing with. This is why the gospel is, is a transforming power. Because it doesn't depend on our asking in specific ways what we need. It doesn't depend on our recognition of our need even. But Jesus gives beyond what we can imagine. Now, let me give you this illustration. Like many of you, I've been reading and listening to remembrances of 9-11 throughout this week. Uh, and I came across a fascinating account of Christina Stanton, uh, who was in New York with her husband Brian. They had just gotten married, moved into this new apartment just blocks away from the, from the Twin Towers and actually saw the plane and saw the towers, the first tower collapse, and they ran out, and so they end up in Battery Park, which, as I understand, is on the, the tip of Manhattan, and there's nowhere else to go. You're at, you're at the water now. And a bunch of people, thousands of people, were trapped there, in fact, we're only saved because other people with boats just came and, and, and took people out and, and, and took them to New Jersey and other places, wherever they could, they could dock. So it was a miraculous rescue. And she, and she was not a religious person, even though she grew up in the church. She wasn't a Christian, wasn't a practicing Christian. And she, she retells, recalls the story of being there at Battery Park and thinking, this may be it, we may die. <laughs> this may be it. And having this, this feeling of hopelessness just, just grasp her heart. Now, they were saved. And of course, just a couple of weeks later, the bills are coming in. Their medical bills, they don't have work anymore. Their apartment is a mess. All that is happening. And a friend says, you should go to this church in Manhattan and ask for help because they have set up a benevolence fund and they're just giving checks out to people. And she's like, well, I don't know if we should go. It's embarrassing, and there are people who need it much more than we need it. And finally, out of desperation, she went. Went to this office at Redeemer Presbyterian Church and shared her story. And the ladies there, the two, two ladies listened to her, and they just wrote a checkout to cover her medical expenses. This is why she came. She received what she came for. And this is how she describes which she felt afterwards. She says, As I rode the subway home, I was lost in thought. I recalled the moment on 9-11 when Brian and I had said goodbye to each other at the, at the fort, when I realized that my relationship with God was practically non-existent. But here I was, going to the church for help, and those ladies had cared. As I pieced everything together, something shifted inside of me. I felt hope. That simple act of Christian mercy had begun the process toward restoring my faith. The weight of injustice I had been carrying began to lift. I felt less like the world was against me, and I had a new desire to learn more about God. Now, she went to ask for money, a legitimate need. She knew the need. She, praise God, she knew to go to the church. Praise God for her friend who directed her. She received tangible help. But on top of that, 
God gave her hope. God restored her faith. God opened a door into the church community who cared for them. And God created a new spiritual desire in her heart. Now, she and her husband ended up becoming part of Redeemer, experienced incredible spiritual changes in their lives, and decided to stay in New York. When many people left, left they decided to stay in New York to work, work to rebuild the city after that tremendous crisis. Amazing story. She wasn't looking for hope at that church office. She wasn't looking for faith to be restored. She was very hesitant to go, and yet when she went, God blessed her beyond what she expected. Same is happening in our story here in Acts 3. The man receives much more than he asks for as well. Now look at verse 8. It says, And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, the first thing we see is he was physically healed. Of course, he was, he was healed. He wasn't asking for a healing. He was asking for money. But God healed him through Peter and John. And that was amazing. Not at all what he expected. It was an amazing thing. But God didn't stop there. The man entered the temple praising God. This is so significant. He was at the gate. He was at the gate, unable to go and worship. And now that he is physically healed... A spiritual transformation is happening and he's entering the temple to praise God, to worship Him. He went through the door that had been closed to him before. He joined in the worship of God. He was made acceptable in God's presence purely by God's grace. The grace he wasn't seeking. The grace he wasn't asking for. That was just showered on him by God. And he entered the temple with them. With whom? John, Peter, probably other believers. Now, he has found a new family. A new network of relationships. A new community that started caring for him, that would love him. Now, it's tempting to focus here only on the physical healing. And we shouldn't minimize that. There's a, there's a remarkable thing that happened here in the physical healing. But look at all of the restoration that the gospel brought into his life. Without him expecting anything more than a few coins to get through that day. I think it's an amazing story. C.S. Lewis famously said in his address, The Weight of Glory, he said, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. There's a lesson for us here in this text. The gospel offers more to us than we know to ask. So if you're not a Christian and you're wondering if Jesus can help you in some way, please know that he can help you in ways that you cannot even imagine yet. All of us have testimonies of that. We came to Jesus with a particular problem 
We've encountered him because we were desperate in a particular area of our lives. And then Jesus just did things in our lives that we didn't know we needed, that we didn't expect him to do. We didn't think he could do that. And now our lives are different. Now, you may be looking to Jesus to make your life just a little more bearable or tolerable. But he is looking to give you a whole new life. What he wants for you is a whole new life. He's not interested in just improving your life a little bit. You are interested in that, but he isn't. He is interested in giving you a whole new life. And he won't stop until he does it in your life. He will transform you. You may be begging at the gate, but you cannot even envision what is on the other side. But he will lead you through it, and he will show you, and he will give it to you. Jesus said in Luke 12, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, he said, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I mean, it's an amazing thing. He says, you guys are scared. Like just this little flock of sheep. He says, but don't be scared. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You can't even imagine what it is. But it is his good pleasure, it is his intention, this is God's will to bless you beyond your expectations. That's the gate. Now let's look at the story from the perspective of Peter and John. Different, we're shifting gears a little bit here. They come across this desperate man, knowing that what he wants is money, they know that, he's he's, he's there every day, they probably have have seen him before. And this is what they do, verses 4, 5, and 6. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. (laughs) Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. What is he expecting? Money. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. They engage with the man. They, they make eye contact with him. They, they talk to him. They demand his attention because they know that they have something to give him, but it is not what he's expecting. They couldn't give him money. They didn't have money. But they could heal him in the name of Jesus. Now, this is a question for our church, I think for the church at large today, this question that comes from this passage. And the question is this. What do we have to give? What do we have to give to others? Do we need vast financial resources to be effective in our witness? Do we need political influence to change our city? Do we need excellent communication and marketing skills to convince people of the truth of the gospel? Now, those things that I've mentioned are not bad things. Why shouldn't we use money? We have a benevolence fund. Why shouldn't we use political influence? Why shouldn't we, we use communication and, and marketing? But they are not essential. And if we don't have them, but we have something else, we will still be effective. As the account of the early church in the book of Acts teaches us, the only essential power 
is the power of the Holy Spirit. The only essential power that we need for our life, for our ministry, for our witness, is the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter and John gave what they had, which was the influence of the Holy Spirit, in this case resulting in a physical healing and a much greater restoration of the person. As a church, let me talk to Chatham for a second. As a church, we must decide on the basis, on the, on the fundamental nature of our ministry and witness. We, may, we need to make that decision. We must decide whether it is going to be natural or supernatural. Is it going to be our power or God's power? Do we cultivate our skills and resources or do we cultivate our connection with God? That's the choice. And I think it is a decision. And I think churches make different decisions when faced with this question. But if you look at Peter's sermon following the healing at the temple gate, you will see that the apostles decided to trust the supernatural power of God. When, when people flock to them after the healing... The first thing, the first thing Peter says, why are you coming to us? Why do you think it's, it's us? Why do you think we have some special power or skill? And then he proceeds to preach about Jesus, completely turning attention away from them as apostles, these powerful apostles that can heal people, to Jesus, to the name. How many people today, how many Christians today bemoan our lack of resources. The church is getting poorer. We're losing members. We're losing tithes. Missionaries that have depended on people are now realizing those people are dying out and the new people are not coming up to support them. How many people are bemoaning that we have a cultural influence that is diminishing today? That we're being misunderstood and misrepresented by the world. Has the Holy Spirit left the church? Has God changed? Has His power diminished? You see, we're focusing on the non-essentials and we're saying we need that. We need that for our witness to be effective. We need money. We need people. We need resources. We need space. We need zoning favor. But God hasn't changed. His power hasn't diminished. The Holy Spirit is still as active in the church as He's ever been. What we have is not natural. So let's not try to replace the supernatural power of God with natural resources, skills, and influence. They're fine. They're okay to have. They're okay to use. But they should never replace our dependence on the Holy Spirit. Um, A.W. Tozer famously said that if you took the Spirit away from the church, the church will still function fine for 100 years just based on the programs that have been developed. Right? That's an indictment on the church. And he said that probably 60, 70 years ago. So maybe we're at the end of that 100 years. Maybe we would have to finally realize that we have to depend on the Holy Spirit. But what we do in church, what we do as a community of believers, is, is not natural. We're not, we shouldn't trust natural resources. We shouldn't trust our skills. We shouldn't trust 
that we have something that we could use, we can leverage it, we can make it happen, we can force something into happening. This is the wrong way to go about it. And the whole book of Acts is showing us that. That's how it's supposed to be. It's the supernatural acts of the Holy Spirit. So let's not try to replace that power, that supernatural power of God with natural resources, skills, and influence. Because when that happens, we actually become powerless to help anyone, no matter how much wealth and influence we have accumulated. A story is told of a medieval monk walking in Rome with a cardinal. They're just strolling the streets of Rome. As they, and they see a beggar. They see a beggar on a street corner. And the cardinal pulls out a gold coin and tosses it to the beggar. And he smiles and says, we can no longer say, silver and gold have I none. The monk quietly replies, nor can we say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Because the church has replaced the supernatural power of God with the natural resources but they cannot produce the supernatural change that people need. I came across a, a, just a great uh, passage of Scripture in Second Chronicles 16 where we're told of the last years of King Asa. And Asa was a good king. And he, uh, great religious reforms, brought Israel back to the worship of the Lord, uh, was not an idolater and, and, and experienced incredible victories. God just fought the battles for Judah. And yet in his latter years, and this is in 2 Chronicles 16, we are told that, that he faced with another enemy. Now, mind you, there was a million-man army that went against him, and God, God defeated them early in his reign. But later, another army comes up, not as numerous, not as dangerous. And what does he do? He hires the Syrians to help him. And then when Asa got sick, it says that he did not seek the Lord, but he relied on his physicians. Oh, doctors are great. We should trust our doctors. We should go to doctors. But we shouldn't replace God with doctors. We shouldn't replace God with an army. It's interesting that his sin, Asa's sin, was not like the sin of almost every other king. He didn't set up a pillar. He didn't bring another god into the temple. He didn't set up high places. He didn't do any of that. What he did is he stopped relying on God. Israel still worshiped God. There's services going on. There's teaching going on, acts of mercy. But the king didn't rely on God. He didn't trust him. He trusted other things. He trusted the natural things like medicine and military power and money he could pay to the Syrians. Asa just stopped relying on the Lord. Now, isn't that the sin of the contemporary church? We do not rely on the Lord. We still worship Him. Our theology is correct. Maybe as correct as it ever has been our theology. And yet, we are sinning by not trusting God and not trusting His power to defeat our enemies, but accumulating resources and, and fundraising and recruiting so we can defeat our enemies. We trust the natural means and we don't ask God's, for God's power to work in and through us. 
Peter and John gave what they had. They had the supernatural power of God to share. Not because of them, but because of God who gave it to them. And they gave it to the man. But we cannot give what we don't have. We can't give what we don't have. And what we should give, what we should have, is God himself and his life-changing power. Do we have him as a church? Do we have him? And do we have his power? Because you can't give what you don't have. And the sign of a church trusting God and seeking God and, and, and making use of his power and sharing that freely with others, you know what the sign is? An overflowing prayer meeting. <laughs> Not a worship service, but a prayer meeting where all we do is pray. And the prayers are long. And people pray about all sorts of things. And they go off script and they interrupt each other. <laughs> but if that room is overflowing, if the church shows up to a prayer meeting, it's a sure sign that we are trusting in His power. We're not trying to make it look sexy. We're just showing up to pray because God is there. And God delights to have His people gather and pray to Him. And so He shows up. And we get his power. We are changed in his presence. That's the sign. And until our prayer meetings overflow, I don't know that we can claim that we are functioning in a supernatural way, trusting that God does what he promised to do. Now the leap. We talked about the door, the desperate man at the door, getting much more than he asked for. We talked about the look. The apostles engaging with the man, looking at him, demanding his attention because what they have to give is very, very special and supernatural. And finally, uh, not finally, but the next is the leap. So let's turn our attention to the healed beggar who's now leaping and praising God in the temple. I mean, kind of a funny thing, right? I mean, you can imagine that. I think it probably looked ridiculous. I don't know if anybody leaps in a, in a graceful way. I've never seen that. <laughs> But he is overflowing with emotion. He's overflowing with joy. Because he can't leap now, you see. He can walk. He can be in the temple. He can praise God with the worshipers. Now this word leap is very significant. It's a rare word. And it's used in the Greek translation of Isaiah 35. We read that passage as a call to worship. It talks about lame people leaping. Now, what the author of Acts, what Luke is doing here, is he's given us the context for this healing. And he's using a very specific word to take us to Isaiah 35. Now, remember, Acts is written in Greek. So the people who are reading Acts, they're reading the Old Testament in Greek. And they know this word. They remember Isaiah 35. They're connecting the dots. And what the author is saying here is that the man's joyful leaping after a supernatural healing is a sign, is a preview of the much greater, fuller, more permanent restoration that is to come because that's what Isaiah 35 is about. He's putting this miracle, this physical healing, in the context of God's redemptive plans for his whole creation. This is really important. As you read this, the temptation is to say God healed a person. And it's easy to say, cool, God, God heals people. God can heal us from any illness or disability. 
But just like the beggar's expectations, this view of limiting it just to the physical healing is too narrow. And the author is expanding that view for us, and he's saying, go back to Isaiah 35. See what Isaiah 35 is talking about, and put this passage in the context of the fuller restoration that is promised through the Messiah. Now, I believe God heals people today. I have experienced it in my own family. We hear testimonies of people being healed in our church. However, I also know that there are many who are praying for a healing in desperate circumstances and are not receiving that healing. I know many people, godly people, who pray for healings and God does not heal them. The question is why? Why does he heal some and he doesn't heal others? What should we expect when we pray for healings? Now let me try to help us figure it out. Any healing here is a temporary reversal of the decay permeating all creation. You see, no one is perfectly healthy here. Thus, no one is perfectly healed here. Degrees vary, sure. Some of us are more sick than others. But nobody is perfectly healthy. And whoever is receiving a healing from the Lord, it's a partial healing, it's a temporary healing. But we have a God-given desire for health. We're made to be healthy. We're made to be whole. We're not made to live in brokenness, so we pray for healing. And I think that is biblical. I think that is in accordance with God's will for us. We pray and we ask for God to restore us and renew us, including our physical health, but not limited to that. And God responds to some of our prayers for healing to show His love for us and His presence with us because He's a kind Father. And when He sees His child hurting, He would sometimes, often, respond by healing, by helping, by taking pain away for a time. But His greater reason for healing is not the temporary absence of pain is not a marginal improvement in our health for a time his greater reason for healing is to show that a greater healing is coming just like here in our passage the man leaps but he's leaping in a preview of a much greater leaping of creation and so it points us, it pushes us to think a greater restoration is coming and whatever healing God has done in my life or in your life is a preview, it's evidence, it's proof that as a greater healing is coming. And Luke, by the way, who's a physician, the author of Acts, he's very specific to describe this healing as a real healing. He's using medical terms to tell us that the man's ankles were healed. So he's not denying at all the reality of a physical healing that God did here. It happened. But then he uses the Isaiah 35 language to point to a greater healing that is to come when God restores all of his creation. And in fact, when Peter preaches to explain the miracle, this is a major point that he makes in his sermon, that a greater restoration is coming. Don't just think of this as all that God is going to do is heal you now. God is going to heal his whole creation. Verses 19, 20, 21. Peter preaches, he says, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. 
that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. He's promising a restoration. He's promising a, a refreshing, something God is going to do to lift us from our condition. And that he may send the Christ appointed to you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Prophets like Isaiah in chapter 35. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, don't be surprised God healed somebody. Of course God heals people. God brings restoration and changes into our lives all the time. But remember, remember that a greater restoration is to come. And whatever is happening in your life now, whatever changes you're experiencing now, they're all pointing to the greater change that is to come. When God heals, He heals as a proof and preview of the coming restoration. When He doesn't heal, He nurtures the longing of our hearts for that same coming restoration. John Owen, the great Puritan, said, the answer to all, your, all our prayers is our complete sanctification. The answer to all our prayers is our complete sanctification. This is a great quote. Because he says, whatever you're praying for, the way God is going to answer that is to restore you completely. <laughs> that's, that's what he wants. Remember, he's going to give you more than what you're asking for. You may be just asking for a physical healing now, and he may grant you that. But he is certainly interested in granting you complete restoration. And by the way, he uses pain and suffering to get you there as well. His goal is the same. Full restoration, complete, final, eternal restoration. That's what he wants for you. And he's going to do it. Whether you're going to see it now in, a, in terms of a physical healing, emotional healing, social reconciliation, or whether you're going to see all of it all at once when Jesus returns. So we believers leap with joy at what God is doing in our lives now. Of course we are. Whether it's healing or protection or provision or, or supernatural peace, whatever He gives us, we, we leap with joy because He is here and He's working in our lives. There's real change that's happening. My life is qualitatively different because I am a Christian. And you didn't know me before I was a Christian. I realized that. But I bet you even within the time that you knew me, that you know me, I pray and I hope you've seen a change in me. <laughs> because God is working. I'm different. The way, I, the way I process suffering is different. My joy is greater. My emotional capacity has increased, believe it or not. God has been working in my life. There has been healing. There has been changes. But let me tell you, you're not going to believe the kind of Sergei you're going to see in glory. <laughs> it's going to be very different because God will give all of it to me then. He will restore me completely, and He will do that for you. For every one of His children, He will bring that full restoration, full healing to you where there will be no sin, no sickness, no sorrow anymore. Complete healing, permanent renewal. And today, as much as I can leap with joy because he's working in my life right now. I also leap in joy in anticipation of the coming restoration. And my joy, both from experience now and in faith and anticipation of restoration, becomes an apologetic for the gospel. Because we, joyful people, joyful based on experience and joyful based on hope, 
We are ourselves a preview for the coming restoration. We are ourselves a preview of what God can do in someone's life. And people are drawn to him because of our joy. If you're not a believer, when you meet Jesus, you will experience tremendous changes in your life. You will. But you will also receive hope for the future restoration of all things. And that is enough to make you leap with joy. Now finally, let's talk about the name. We need to make explicit what I have been alluding to throughout the sermon. When Peter healed the desperate man, he did it in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, very specifically in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Everybody knew who that person is. The name in the Bible is a shorthand for all that the person is, his authority, his personality, his character. Peter did not heal the man because he possessed special skills. I have healing skills, that's not why. Or because he, has some, he had some power within himself to, to do these kinds of amazing things. He did it in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And then Peter preached a sermon about Jesus Christ of Nazareth to explain the miracle, just so there is no confusion who is doing this here. The whole sermon centers on Jesus, on his death, on his resurrection, and on the hope of his return. So I'd like to conclude my sermon by talking about the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This person, this God, became human for us. He went outside the gate for us. On the cross, Jesus experienced physical disability. Immobilized on the cross, couldn't move. His body couldn't move on the cross. He couldn't breathe, which is what kills you on the cross. You can't breathe. On the cross, he experienced social disability. He was alone. Everyone turned away from him, utterly alone on the cross. His friends for, for, uh, have forsaken him, abandoned him. On the cross, he experienced spiritual disability. He was separated from God when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus became a desperate man. Why? Because he looked at you, because he met your eye, because he made eye contact with you, the beggar at the gate. And his heart was overflowing with compassion. And he decided to come and help you. He decided to give all that he had to us, even his life, even his life. Whoever heard of a God given his life for his creatures. But this is why Peter could promise forgiveness of sins and the hope of restoration. That's why he could make these great promises. Why? Because the power of God, all of the resources of God have been engaged on your behalf. Because Jesus actually gave everything he had to help us. That's what happened on the cross. He emptied himself 
everything he had, all the resources, all the supernatural power of God is now working on your behalf. It's an amazing thought. And on the third day, when Jesus leaped out of the grave, his resurrection becomes a proof and preview of the coming resurrection for all his followers. Jesus is the pioneer. He's the forerunner. He's the first fruits of the harvest. But we are the harvest. He rises first, but then we follow him. We live between the the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of, of all of his followers. Because he was restored, we will be restored. Our healing lies in his healing. Our resurrection lies in his resurrection. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, we will rise and we will leap and walk, praising God, in the new Jerusalem when he returns in glory and make all things new. Because he rose, we too will rise with him. And so this Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, is looking at you today. He's looking at you, and he demands your attention. Will you look at him in faith? In faith and expectation that his grace can change you now and restore you completely in eternity. I'm going to ask you to come to the beautiful gate of Jesus and go through that door by faith. He will lead you to the other side, but go through and follow him through the gate. Because on the other side, there's a feast. There's a feast of God's presence. There's a feast of God's blessings. There's a feast of every bad thing in your life being redeemed to become good. All these promises are true because Jesus of Nazareth, that Jesus, gave his life, gave his all for you, and all the power of God is now working to happen working to have all those promises come true in your life now and in eternity. So we'll come and symbolically feast at his table now.